0: Welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast, produced by the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. The CWD provides the historical context and strategic analysis to inform understanding of today's geopolitical challenges, promoting discussion through research, teaching, consultancy and public events. Hello, I'm Marco Weiss, I'm a reader in international history and security at Lancaster University and the director of the Center for War and Diplomacy. I'm joined today by Nathaniel Powell, a great scholar on Francophone Africa. Nat completed his PhD in international history and politics from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva in 2013. His research focuses on the post-colonial relationship between France and its former African colonies particularly on the question of military interventions. He has published on various facets of the history of French military interventions in Africa in the Journal of Cold War Studies, African Security, Les Temps Modernes, International History Review, as well as in media outlets such as Foreign Affairs, War on the Rocks, and The Conversation. His current research looks at the role of French intelligence and security assistance in the political trajectories of newly independent African states in the 1960s and 1970s. He's also working on a book project focusing on western support for Mobutu's Zaire in the 1970s. Nat's most recent publication, France's Wars in Chart, Military Intervention and Decolonization in Africa, has just come out with Cambridge University Press. This fascinating book which you can, of course, by directly from Cambridge University Press or any other major bookseller, provides the basis for this podcast interview today. So thank you very much for joining me today, Nat, and uh, of course, being available for answering the many questions I have in relation to your groundbreaking book and research on post-Colonial Africa.
1: Thanks, Marco. I appreciate it. And thanks for inviting me to, to be on uh, the podcast today.
0: Yeah, thank you, Nat. So, uh, if you don't mind, I will start immediately with my questions, because I think we have a lot of ground to cover. Now, firstly, how did you actually get interested in researching France's military interventions in Africa? Right,
1: so that's a a very uh, broad question, So, uh, and it's it's a complicated one to answer, but the main, because I'm an American, and I grew up in Pennsylvania, and... You know, studying the Franco-African relationship is not an obvious uh, career uh, choice for me, but I think probably the the kind of main event that sparked my interest in this at the beginning was when I was an undergraduate and I had the opportunity of studying abroad uh, in France and in West Africa. So I did one semester in, in Paris and one semester in Dakar in Senegal. And I was really struck by uh, the kind of Relationship that continued to exist between France and its former colonies, and the way in which French influence uh, still maintained kind of powerful hold on certain aspects of Senegal's uh, politics and uh, its, uh, even its culture. And uh, also part of it was my the area I was studying. The university I was studying at was right next to a big French uh, military base, so I saw French soldiers every day, and I was what the hell are these guys doing here? <laughs> and, you know, this is also right after, uh, you know, after the Iraq war had begun, and uh, the uh, kind of, you know, I remember France is standing up strong against the American kind of American imperialism in the Middle East, and, you know, they were kind of a voice in the world against, you know, senseless wars and senseless conflicts, and, you know, I think even at that age, it wasn't quite so naive as to believe, you know, them you know their, their pure, pure-hearted ideals, but uh, going to Senegal really opened my eyes to you know, the, the point that you know France also had a strong interventionist past and themselves uh, conduct themselves in, in ways that are very reminiscent of uh, American policy in other parts of the world. Um, and then I kind of carried that forward uh, when I was doing my graduate studies. Um, I was kind of casting around uh, for things to do as a PhD. because The uh, financial crisis hit, and uh, I was trying to figure out. Well, <laughs> I want to do a PhD because I'm not going to get a job otherwise. Um, which was maybe a mistake, I don't know. but it <laughs> I did uh, I was kind of casting on for ideas of what to do, and I, I kind of kind of fell back on this uh, on this kind of interesting puzzle that I had in my mind about this uh, Franco- african relationship, and particularly it's its kind of security dimensions. So uh, I started off kind of looking at that and kind of looking at the literature that existed in English and in French on this, and I was uh, kind of I, I was kind of surprised to discover that the historiography, of this Franco-African relationship was actually quite limited in a lot of ways. I mean, there were a lot of journalistic accounts. Um, of course, when I started the project, there weren't yet um, a whole lot of uh, strongly archival sourced works on anything past the early 1960s. So I felt like there was a strong, uh, kind of a strong possibility of, of you know, kind of things to to discover there. And this also kind of coincides with the explosion of the historiography of the Cold War in the Global South, you know, the Global Cold War. Uh, and I was really influenced by reading Vestad uh, and reading uh, Pio Gay-Jesus on uh, the Cuban role in um, in in Africa uh, during the Cold War. So these kind of things um, kind of all combined to uh, kind of lead me to consider looking at the French role uh, in a similar way that Gay-Jesus had looked at the Cuban role. So I thought, you know, let's find some military interventions that France got involved in. Let's just dig into them in depth. Uh, and that's when I came across the 1970s. And the 1970s is a period of time. Uh, in which uh, the French president, uh, Valé Giscard d'Estaing, uh, was uh, in power from 1974 to 1981, and his administration saw uh, very interventionist and activist uh, foreign policy. So I thought that this is actually a good way to bookend my my research, to look at his administration um, and and look at the kind of uh, his security policy or military policy in Africa at the time, and there are five different interventions I could look at. And CHAD was uh, probably the largest scale of these interventions, uh, or the largest of these interventions. Uh, and my dissertation, which I, I defended in 2013, uh, which is about Valéry Giscal d'Estaing and his uh, military interventions in Africa, uh, one of the case studies was about CHAD. There were a couple others on some other um, aspects of French activism as well. But uh, I decided afterwards that I was going to turn this into a book, and partly it has to do with recent history of the Sahel, uh, yeah, as you know, there's been um, an explosion of, of conflicts from beginning in Mali, but you know, stretching throughout uh, large parts of the Sahel, including Niger and Burkina Faso uh, since 2012, actually. And um, that's the, uh, the expansion of French military engagement there since, since Operation Serval in 2013 has uh, really kind of um, inspired me to take that one case study and really um, deepen that research and expand it chronologically to try to look at uh, the history of French military interventions in Chad and uh, look at their kind of impact and consequences, uh, but also their sources and um, to kind of see, uh, you know, if there's anything that, any kind of lessons that can be drawn from that, uh, from that somewhat sorted history uh, to uh, today's, you know, policies. So I guess, yeah, that's a very long-winded answer to a very short question,
0: but there you have it. Thank you, Nat. Yes, uh, quite interesting research trajectory there. And of course, it shows the topicality of your topic. Um, now, in order for our listeners to understand more broadly what you're writing about, um, what would be uh, or what was France's post-colonial security role in Africa?
1: Sure. So um, one of the things that I think is striking about France's continued engagement in Africa, uh, particularly its former colonies, which is a kind of a, a strong continuity with with the way they've acted since 1960, since the uh, since most of its colonies gained their independence. Um, that kind of the consistent kind of threat of French policymaking has been to maintain kind of stable political orders capable of acting as conduits for French influence and uh, bolstering French prestige as a world power. And uh, there are kind of different elements of this. Uh, of course, the longest and most consistent criticism of the French role has been uh, relating to French economic exploitation of its former colonies, uh, which was certainly true and even to some extent uh, you know, remains true at at least some level. Um, but that doesn't tell the whole story. And that was also one of the puzzles I was trying to engage with when I began the research uh, many, many years ago, is try to look at most, well, I would say most kind of, um, attempts to explain French security policy or many attempts to explain French security policy in Africa uh, revolved around the economic dimension, that this is about protecting core French economic interest. And that seemed to me too facile and kind of too simplistic. And I was, I was, try- I was interested in kind of what, what else is going on? What other kinds of elements go into this? And uh, it's actually interesting. So if you look at the the weight of sub-Saharan Africa and in the former empire in France's overall economy, um, even, during, even during colonial times, this wasn't particularly large. Uh, and and after decolonization, uh, or after 1960 anyway, this this um, this relative weight actually declined precipitously. And by the 1970s, France's largest trade partners were uh, were Nigeria and South Africa, not in in Africa, not not its former colonies. So we're talking about a, a small, a few percentage points of France's overall trade and for investment are actually related to the former colonies. So uh, this. Kind of led me to think you know maybe maybe the economic dimension is not that important in explaining France's overall activism or the kind of root of its security policy so um question is, what are these other elements that drive French French engagement uh and have in the past and, and some certainly continue to this day um so particularly during the cold war, the cold war uh there was a, a strong military consideration so there were plenty of French military planners after the second world war that valued the former empire, or even the empire before it was former, uh, as a strategic asset. Um, this is something that could give France strategic depth in the case of a war with the Soviet Union. Um, and they kind of referred to the way that uh, the uh, former empire, and particularly Chad, had been used as a springboard for uh, the Free French forces during the Second World War uh, in their uh, in their um, kind of campaign to, to eventually liberate France. Uh, and they're joining up with the Allies in North Africa um, and the defeat of the Italians. So, uh, there was this kind of memory about the importance of Africa as a strategic asset in the Second World War and how this could be mobilized in the future. So, even after the independence of African states, it was very important for French policymakers to maintain their access to these countries as, uh, uh, you know, for you know, potential future use, uh, either in a war against the Soviet Union or um, or for other purposes. Um, there's uh, there there's also kind of a broader diplomatic dimension to this. Having strong African allies linked to France uh, could provide supportive votes at the UN and other international fora, and this would um, kind of help boost French prestige as a as a um, kind of self-defined uh, world power of middling status or great middle power or uh, greatest middle power. I mean, here's different formulations like this in uh, uh, among French policymakers in uh, at different times. Um you know they knew they couldn't match the United States or Soviet Union in terms of uh, you know as being global superpowers, but if they could maintain a, a, a geographical field of influence that would at least give them a seat at the table with the big boys um, at the UN uh, and elsewhere. So having this kind of African dimension to their um, to their international portfolio was was seen as an asset. And I think even to this day is seen as an asset among French policymakers. Um, so this relationship, which is kind of later described both negatively and positively as La France Afrique um also contains and contained this kind of cultural ideological element which was vested in preserving uh, french language and culture especially against anglo-saxon encroachment and one of the kind of interesting features of french france's role in africa during the cold war but also afterwards uh into the 1990s at least is the sense in which french policymakers would often see the americans and to a lesser extent the british as nearly as much of a threat to their um interest as uh, the soviet union Uh, or international communism. And this would often um, play uh, a role in their policymaking, which would have kind of interesting consequences. Maybe we could talk a bit more about how that played itself out in Chad, um, which goes a bit beyond the scope of my book, but it is an interesting question. Um, And and this also reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, um, which of course I'm gonna mess up because I don't have the entire quote um, (laughs) memorized, but uh, uh, Giscard Giscard had a lot of foreign ministers, but one of his foreign ministers was uh, Louis Guirango, and uh, he had a very interesting formulation to describe the importance of Africa for France's foreign policy. And he said something along the lines that um, uh, Africa was the only place that France could still matter in the world, and where, with 500 men, she could still change the course of history. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, it, it sounds in some ways a bit absurd, and certainly sound has a kind of neo-colonial tinge to it. Um, but it actually. Uh, Is an important consideration when uh, when looking at how French policymakers are kind of looking at how they can punch above their weight and have their impact have an impact in broader world politics, international politics. That you know, if they intervene in a country like the Central African Republic or Chad or um, you know, Zaire, um, they can have a major impact in the course of events in the way that they wouldn't be able to even in say Lebanon um, or 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 further afield. So um, that's another kind of element of French policy uh, in Africa that needs to be kind kind of kept. In, in mind um but yes yeah, so i would say the one of the core features of this policy one of the goals of this policy was to to protect reliable clients or reliable reliable client regimes and uh and regional orders uh, against threats that are both conceived of as internal and external um, and uh, particularly external so a lot of these would be a lot of the threats to this order would be conceived in terms of um, communist subversion uh, american ambitions or or later on libyan expansionism uh, and these were things that had to be combated so france would you know would allow their clients a certain level of autonomy but if it, they these, this level of autonomy came into contact or conflict with these broader threats france would not hesitate to intervene and, and to do this uh france kind of the french security architecture in the continent from 1960 onwards it's really 1960s and it declined a bit in the 1970s uh, and, and after that but uh france still maintained a a wide constellation of military bases in africa there were french organized and staffed intelligence agencies uh, french trained armies there were military advisors uh, with command responsibilities embedded in african militaries there were uh french uh, advisors and the executives uh, powerful french advisors and the executives of african governments uh as well as kind of semi-exclusive bilateral aid regimes that maintained uh, close ties between these these states and and france itself so um yeah i mean you could you know, in a word, the French relationship with its the French security relationship with its former empire was was extremely uh, close. Uh, and and you know in in many ways, certainly in the first two decades after independence, I think it,
0: the word neocolonial is not too strong a word to use to describe this relationship it's yeah, absolutely fascinating and of course you presented very nicely now the france's sort of security policy towards africa during the cold war and more generally its approach uh towards africa its african policy so how do france's interventions in chart which you so extensively study uh, in your book fit into its african policy during the cold war right so it's interesting you say
1: Cold War uh, there, and um, I think we can talk about the broader Cold War context a bit later. But I think one thing that we we need to say is that um, although France's African project was in part an outgrowth of the Cold War, at least in strategic or ideological terms, um, one of its main goals was to shield its former empire from the broader Cold War. France's interventions in Chad, um, but also elsewhere, aimed to avoid a situation in which fragmentation. Um, of different countries could, could puncture a hole in that shield and invite foreign interventions that would ultimately either drive France away or substantially reduce French influence. Uh, And I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that, at least in Chad, that strategy ultimately failed. Um, Although, you know, elsewhere, I think the the success of of that approach may have been more, um, well, maybe more successful. Now I think more broadly speaking, as I said before, France's main goal was kind of macro stabilization. Uh, and a consistent theme in French political discourse about Africa from the 1960s uh, onwards. And I, I talk about this in an article I wrote for African Security about how core the, the concept of st- stability and stabilization is to French security uh, discourse about Africa from the 60s onwards. This kind of consistent theme uh, to this day. Uh, you know, Macron has mentioned this several times in the past a couple of months, stability, stability, stability. And um, it's interesting because about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, Paul Collier was a uh, Collier. Not quite sure how you pronounce his last name. I guess Collier. I don't think he's French. So Paul Collier. Um, he did some work about trying to look at the impact of French influence on the longer-term political trajectories of of the former empire, and he concluded using kind of a statistical analysis uh, that um, that former French colonies were only about a third as likely to experience civil wars as comparable as other comparable African countries between the mid-1960s and the late 1990s, Um, and he attributed this to the French Security Guarantee. Um, Now, I I think there's other factors responsible for this as well, um, and partly related to the Cold War context, but I think it is true at least that until the end of the Cold War, the only major former French colony to experience widespread civil war and state collapse was Chad. Uh, And this, of course, raises a whole host of questions about why, why Chad? Um, And why not Niger, for instance, why not Mali? Uh, Mali certainly had these problems later on. Um, And and one of the things I I try to do in the book is look at the way that uh, factors that were internal to Chad interacted with uh, French policy uh, in ways that drove conflict in particular directions. And uh, one thing that needs to be borne in mind as well is that France always weighed on the political calculus or calculations of, of Chad's different actors, whether they were in a succession of governments or armed groups. I think that's true as a whole. So it's actually, and, and one of the kind of things I want to, I'm trying, one of the ideas I'm trying to get forward with this book as well as 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 well as my broader research is that it's it's really impossible to understand the political trajectory, not just of Chad, but of almost any of France's former colonies without uh, assessing the role of France um, because France was always present in the political calculus of, of any major political actor in any of these countries. Um, and without understanding that, it's really hard to get a grip of Political decisions and choices made uh, by different actors at different times, and in Chad, I think this had had very negative consequences in terms of the stability of the country. Um, it also raised broader questions about what stability actually means—stability uh, for whom—and uh, and, and um, you know that that isn't always necessarily stability for you know the average person, uh, but stability for for regimes. And in Chad, this was certainly a problem.
0: Thank you. Yes, uh, I mean it's fascinating. So now that we know how Chad fits somehow into this picture of French post-colonial uh, security uh, interests and activities in Africa, can you now present perhaps to our audience your main findings on France's role and military interventions in Chad? Yeah.
1: So I I think I'd probably start with just a quick summary of what actually happened because most people aren't <laughs> most people probably can't locate Chad on a map.
0: That would be
1: helpful, <laughs> and, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, and and especially in the English in the English speaking world, um, I I even I kind of joke in my book that you know outside of kind of French political and military circles or activist circles, and and you know and, and outside of Chad, um, the, the story itself isn't well understood. So I, I do spend a lot of time in my book, kind of outlining the history of these conflicts. You know, even apart from the French role, because otherwise it's 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 not going to be you know, easily understood by the reader. So hopefully, if you're approaching the book from um, you know, a perspective of absolutely no prior knowledge about, you know, history of Central Africa. Hopefully I give you enough information to to go on um, in the book. Uh, I tried to spend some time doing that. So don't be scared away from the book if you don't feel like you know anything about Central Africa. Uh, I have you in mind when I wrote it. That being said, Chad is a country that is, is quite literally in Central Africa. Um, it's often described as being in the Sahel. So that's the, uh, the kind of uh, belt that includes parts of the Sahara Desert, but also it kind of broader savanna and and even some uh, more tropical uh, territory that uh, lies basically along the kind of edges of the Sahara Desert, and it's um it's kind of in between the uh, Red Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. It really is kind of in the middle, uh, and this was a territory that was colonized by France beginning in around 1900, and uh, it was formally integrated into as a French colony in the 1920s and remained a French colony until 1960 when it became independent along with uh, virtually every other um, French uh, former colony in, in Africa and in West and Central Africa, as well as Madagascar. Um, Djibouti is the exception to that. So uh, Chad kind of had uh, a, along with some of its neighbors had this disadvantage of being a landlocked uh, landlock colony um, and later on a landlocked country. So it's economic possibilities for, uh, for development are quite limited. Uh, also, the northern part of the country is is largely uh, savannah or desert, so uh, the people living there are, are kind of sparsely, um, uh, well, the, the population is, is relatively sparse, and the south is more of a, you know, more arable land, but the French kind of opposed cotton cultivation as a means to develop the economy, which had incalculable consequences on kind of uh, food availability and food security in the country, but also it reinforces kind of north-south divide in the country in which uh, southern people who were who broadly described uh, or broadly given the ethnic definition of Sarah uh, and are broadly Christian or practice traditional religions became the kind of French French preferred uh, group to rule the country after uh, towards the end of the colonial era and then independence. And then uh, people in the north, people who are largely or almost entirely Muslim were excluded from political participation in any substantial way. And this was one of the kind of primary causes of conflict later on. This kind of distinction between, not just ethnic distinction between northerners and southerners, but between Muslims and non-Muslims and between um uh, uh kind of even kind of elements within the north as well, which I don't need to get into here. But this would eventually cause a lot of tension. And as the as France um and one of the th- key things to understand about Chad is that Chadian political elites played almost no role in their territories' independence from France. And uh the reason why France ended up letting go of its uh its territories had um had to do with the increasing power of African elites, but these are particularly elites in, in West Africa. So we're talking about Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire um, and Mali to some extent, uh, but Chad Chadian political elites never played a big role in the anti-colonial struggle. Um, certainly not to the extent that they did in Senegal or, or Cote d'Ivoire or elsewhere. Because of this, when uh, when Chad became independent it remained a state that was not only dominated by um, one particular ethnic group, but it was also deeply and profoundly uh, uh, dependent on French uh, Fre- well, on French security and on French uh, economic assistance, French budgetary assistance for its government, and you know its army was largely staffed by French officers. Uh, it, it still remained, in many ways, a French colony. But it was no longer officially a French colony, and this did allow its government to, um, this is what I would consider to be kind of the beginning of decolonization, not at the end of it, to begin to experiment with policies that uh, that were aimed at kind of building Chad into a kind of a modern state. But the problem is it just didn't have the means to do it. So uh, if you're a state with few resources and um, uh you're also controlled by uh, uh an ethnic uh, minority then you're going to start use you know embarking on policies which which may be alienating to large large groups of the country so the leadership in fort lami which is the capital at the time it's since been renamed jamina began to uh, impose very harsh levels levels of taxation on um on its um its people but particularly people in the north who didn't have uh, necessarily the resources to pay the taxes that were being imposed on them and they also tried to impose uh, cultivation on uh, pastoralists and, and nomads in the north in areas that were completely unsuitable for cultivation. So over the course of several years, this generated enormous amounts of resistance and, and resentment, eventually resulting in a rebellion, which, uh, or rather a series of different kind of uncoordinated rebellions, which eventually took a kind of organizational label of the Front de Liberation Nationale du Chad, uh, which is often referred to as Florina. And now Florina was never a cohesive uh, movement or, or a rebellion, it was usually a series of rebellions. But um, over time, in over the, 19, the course of the 1960s, these different rebel groups under this broad label began to seriously uh, threaten the ability of the Chadian state to govern outside of major cities. And this is when uh, Chad's president, François Tombebaille, began to uh, ask for French assistance in, 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 um, in combating these rebellions. And Chad had a defense agreement with as did many of france's former colonies which uh included a secret clause that allowed uh french uh participation in the repression of domestic disorders so uh and actually it's fun it's kind of interesting when you look at the french justification for getting involved in Chad. they have a secret agreement with Chad about a secret agreement with Chad about doing this but they can't acknowledge it so they have to find kind of really uh, interesting legal uh definitions or legal justifications for getting involved in, in defending this newly independent state the basis of an agreement they can't actually acknowledge. So um, it shows you the limits of secret agreements in international politics. Um, so the French got involved in 1969, since the end of uh, the presidency of Charles de Gaulle. Uh, they send a large military expedition, or, well, large in relative terms, the largest about 2,500 or 2,800 troops, um, which was the largest French intervention outside of France since the end of the Algerian War in 1962. Um, so it was you know quite a significant effort for the French. Uh, but this is also coupled with this administrative reform mission, which aimed to reform Chad's state and government, uh, and that that ultimately failed because a lot of Chadian um, political elites didn't have any interest in their authority being challenged by uh, French advisors and having their authority replaced by people the French judged to be more competent or uh, or more effective. So this all this effort ultimately failed. But the French military effort actually did quite a, a an effective job in destroying the armed elements of this rebellion. Um, but one of the kind of negative effects of this intervention, apart from the civilian casualties, which were occasioned by this uh, kind of repression, which were, it's hard to gauge how many people were killed, but a fair number certainly were, was that France encouraged the creation of lots of local militias that would take up local security duties. And also state authority was an outsource to local chiefs who then used that to kind of impose their own local uh, um, uh, kind of authorities on, on on populations that may or may not have accepted them. Uh, And this led to kind of lasting insecurity in large parts of central and eastern Chad, uh, which made it basically impossible for the state to return and govern those areas. So the French intervention was caused by the failure of the state to govern, and its result was the failure of the state to govern. So it wasn't, uh, it actually, in some ways, it makes things worse. It also, um, this happens so often in the history of French military interventions, it had the effect of Um, providing disincentives for the regime for President Tombovay to actually make the kind of concessions and the political coalitions he would have needed to effectively stabilize the country, because he knew he had French protection. Um, And this would eventually uh, lead several years later in 1975 to his overthrow in a bloody coup d'etat. Because he grew increasingly authoritarian, because he thought he benefited from French protection, he had very little incentives to try to broaden the base of his regime. And um, this new military government that came in in 1975 uh, was also very dependent on the French for their protection. But they had to deal with a, a new threat, which was Libya, the rise of uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, in Libya, who came to power in 1969, uh, who became increasingly involved in, in Chad. And, he, and Libyan forces actually annexed a part of northern Chad called the Uzu Strip in 1973. And this was uh, you know, Libya. Uh, Gaddafi claimed this was Libyan territory um, because of an unratified agreement between uh, uh, Mussolini in 1935 and the French government. It supposedly had lots of natural resources, although um, even to this day I think that's, that's open to question. Also uh, kind of was part of a broader Libyan effort to get involved with different Chatt- northern Chadian groups who had been part of Florina, uh to kind of restart a rebellion against uh, the Chadian government and therefore extend Libyan influence. So a large part of my book, bu- well oh, I have a whole chapter in my book dedicated to something called the Crocele affair, which was a kidnapping of a French archaeologist uh, and uh, and some other French officials, uh, as well as eventually the archaeologist's husband, who was the head of the French administrative reform mission, and the kind of delicate negotiations around this hostage taking, which led to eventually their release through Libyan auspices that also resulted in a massive influx of money and other kinds of resources to the Northern Rebellion, which had been at this point uh, pretty much stagnant. And it was this kind of uh, hostage, uh, the, the ransoms paid for this hostage release that, led to or helped provide the resources for this northern rebellion to get kick again in 1976 and 77 and uh and this actually has parallels with with today because a lot of the um the armed groups in the sahel today uh got their initial kind of boost of resources and continue to get resources from hostage um negotiations and ransom payments and this in some ways uh, also allows them to survive as as autonomous groups now the Libyan role in this armed rebellion actually led to the uh, quick disintegration of the Chadian army in northern Chad. So by 1970, early 1978, about half of Chad was under control of these rebel groups. And they started to make moves towards the south, mo- moves towards Jamina, the capital. And this is where uh, Giscard d'Estaing, the French president, decided on a second major French intervention called Operation Taco. And this aimed to prevent the capture of Jamina and the capture of the south by these Libyan-backed rebel forces. and. These are the politics of it gets quite complicated, but so I'm not gonna go into too much detail. I do chart, chart it uh, pretty extensively in my book, but uh, basically the French mission was pretty successful at the beginning. The problem was it led to um, uh, kind of the same situation that happened before. So the Chadian government now believes itself was protected, uh, believes that it was protected and this uh, created a, a, and reduced their incentives to um, negotiate in ways that may have uh, ended the conflict. So this led to a breakup of the ruling coalition and that led to a bloody civil war uh, between two factions of the ruling coalition. One was led by a man named Hissen Habre uh, and another by the Chadian president, um, Felix Maloum. And the French forces were caught in the middle and this bloody civil war then uh, kind of um, placed the French in a situation in which they uh, weren't able to stop Kind of the violence from occurring because their main goal was to stop the libyans from taking over jamina now the northern rebellion decided that at that point they would break from libya so they were no longer libyan supported rebels they were now independent which was in fact true um and then that gave them kind of the pretext to be able to enter the south to enter the capital city of jamina um, and then overthrow the existing government because they were no longer backed by libya uh, and france wasn't protecting the, the government anymore. So this was um, the Ch- Chadian Southerners felt they were betrayed by uh, France, which had long promised to protect them. Uh, meanwhile, the French army was incapable of kind of acting on um, on this um, kind of increasing civil war, uh, uh, civil war of increasing intensity. Meanwhile, other states start getting involved, like Nigeria, and we we'll talk a bit about more about that later. So uh, basically, from about 1979 onwards, the French were no longer able to control the political dynamics of uh, the spiraling conflict. Um, At the same time, their army was still there, so they were still accused of being responsible for supporting one side or another, which further undermined their their legitimacy. Um, And by 1980, uh, when the Civil War kind of re-erupted after a a kind of very brief kind of peace agreement, Giscard Singh decided to remove his troops from the country. Uh, So you have a country under Civil War, 1980, uh, April 1980, uh, French troops have left. um, And this is the point where, uh, in the course of the summer of 1980 into the fall, uh, Muammar Gaddafi decides that he's going to invade Chad. So, and he does, and he does in favor of his, his favorite, uh, rebel group led by a guy named Gukuni Wede. And after this happens, so October, November, 1981, uh, 1980, sorry, the Libyan army occupies a large chunk of Chad and the French are gone. So this looks like a massive policy failure for the French because they're unable to, their main policy goal was to prevent outside powers from, uh, exerting influence in their former empire. And now you have an entire for an army occupying one of their former colonies, which uh, was humiliating for a lot of French officials. Uh, A lot kind of argued they should re-intervene to fight a war against the Libyans, but um, cooler heads prevailed. Descartes decided ultimately not to do that, partly because um, he had an election coming up. Well, that's not the only reason. So in early 1981, uh, uh, Mitterrand gets elected. He's a new president. Uh, Descartes loses. And Mitterrand uh, is kind of ha- has a very ambiguous position towards the Libyans. He needs Libyan, um, he needs a Libyan market for French arms exports and other kinds of exports because this is a time in, in uh, French history where the French franc is under severe pressure. There's a, a severe current account deficit. Uh, France, uh, inflation is high. They need exports desperately. So Libyan is a great market for that. And just started cancel some arms, arms contracts with with uh, with Libyan. So uh, Mitchell fixed that. At the same time, he was very concerned with Libyan expansion into the former empire. So, uh, French policy from then on, or even from a bit before, is kind of characterized as kind of schizophrenia between elements within French policymaking who want a more pro-Libyan line, elements that want to uh, "quote-unquote" protect their their former empire against Libyan expansion. So, uh, this is uh, this is where Mitchell kind of showed early on its kind of devious side. He's kind of known as a a very cunning French president, but uh, one who is certainly not averse to. Uh, trickery and deception. And he, he managed to convince the head of Gakuni, the, the head of the Chadian government, which is supported by the Libyans, to ask for a Libyan withdrawal in exchange for protection from the African Organization of African Unity, in which Organization of African Unity peacekeepers would come and, and protect his government from uh, guerrilla attacks uh, led by his former enemy, Hussein Habre, if he would ask the Libyans to leave the country. And in exchange, France would agree to resume its aid regime and begin to also provide help for the government. So uh, Gukuni agreed to this and asked for Libyan withdrawal. The Libyans withdrew, um, a lot of reasons behind that we can discuss later. But ultimately the OAU was not in a position to s- protect Gukuni and Gukuni himself resided over a very fractious coalition, uh, a coalition of, of different groups. And they weren't able to pr- protect or uh, prevent the uh, military campaign of Hisan Habre, who was supported by the Americans and the CIA. We can talk more about that later if you want. Uh, and they eventually took over Chad, uh, took over the Chadian capital in 1982. Um, so my book stops 1982 with the arrival and power of Hissain Habre, who later became known as one of Africa's bloodiest dictators. Um, he, When he consolidated his power in Chad in the 1980s, he um, threw tens of thousands of people to prison. Uh, best guess are that about 40,000 people died under his rule directly in, in prisons, and then uh, maybe an equivalent number had been tortured um, uh, or, or otherwise um, mistreated. Uh, so it's really very bloody-minded uh, leader who the French were, whose proclivities were well-known by the French beforehand. The story kind of ends in my book there. Um, you know, maybe, the, maybe I'll write a sequel for the next one, who knows. Uh, but this is uh, it's kind of a, a key turning point, because this is when uh, it becomes clear that France's ability to exert um, its influence in Chad really comes to an end. Um, after this point, their influence is, um, they're not able to kind of weigh in the political dynamics within the country in the same way they were able to before and uh they were uh not able to uh benefit from uh an assured uh and and um an assured client that was willing to support them international for it no matter what like they could in other colonies so what you see really here in this period that i, I write about in the book is a collapse of the neo-colonial, uh, neo-colonial order uh in chad uh, which was not necessarily mimicked elsewhere but it, it definitely demonstrated limits of french Power and the limits of its ability to actually assert uh, assert itself in its former colonial empire, especially when other countries got involved, when other interveners got involved, um, in its in its uh, own backyard. So it's very long and um, you know sidewindy uh, sort of narrative, but uh, I hope that makes some sense. And that's generally what the book's about: this kind of story of how uh, Chadian state gradually kind of collapsed under its own weight, and Francis could multiple interventions to try to save it or um, or put Humpty Dumpty back together again, uh, utterly failed, and uh, resulted
0: in, in actually more chaos and more and more fragmentation. Thank you. Yes, it made perfect sense. Fascinating story. Now, uh, we had before the kind of the French-African policy post-after uh, decolonization, also post-decolonization, mm-hmm. let's put it that way, and now we looked at uh, the interventions in chart. And so, how does France's involvement in chart fit into the broader context of the Cold War in Africa?
1: Then? Uh, that's a really good question. So, as I mentioned before, right, this this book was derived from one of the case studies that I had in my dissertation, um, which focuses on French policy in the '70s in Africa, and French policies in the '70s in Africa were um, partly a reaction to and uh, acceleration of and uh, an escalation of the Cold War on the continent. So uh, this is mainly uh, in the form of major Soviet and Cuban military interventions in Angola, in the Angolan civil war and in Ethiopia, uh, as well as increased Soviet aid to a variety of liberation movements and pressure put on, um, on, on different kind of Western back clients uh, such as uh, Zaire. There was this overall French concern about this destabilization of the continent caused by uh, international communism uh, and there was a fear that you know anything that anything that might go wrong in their former in their former empire might invite further you know might invite the Soviets to intervene in one way or another. And this actually led to um, a couple interesting kind of covert operations. Uh, the biggest was to Angola, but uh, to support groups um, fighting against the government that was supported by the Cubans and the Soviets. But it also led to a, a very abortive and kind of comical attempt to overthrow the government of Bena. Uh, which which failed because the uh, mercenaries that were hired to do the job accidentally ran into the security contingent of a North Korean trade delegation, which then slaughtered them, <laughs> and uh, the survivors had to run back to their airplane, and they left a lot of comp- compromising documents in the ground when they flew off, uh, and uh, that really exposed the French role. There's so there was this fear of communist uh, or broader Soviet designs on the French Empire, uh, or rather, sorry, former Empire. Continued effort to make sure that. France's former empire or the Plague Carré as the French often referred to it, which a not very literal definition would be, an uh, interpretation be be um, kind of France's backyard. Their main goal is to sort of shield this this region from the Cold War. And, and it's interesting because I had a conversation with um, a friend of mine uh, not too long ago about my book and about the Cold War role, the, the, word, the, the role the Cold War plays in the book. And I was joking that it's almost an anti-history, of the Cold War, because I think I mentioned the Cold War maybe twice in the whole book, two or three times, uh, and, and what it really shows is that you actually have a whole host of, of political uh, dynamics going on in Africa, but also elsewhere, uh, that actually have very little to do with the Cold War, um, except maybe in a very broad um, kind of uh, strategic sense. Certainly, um, the French side, the Fr- French. If you look at French concerns about Chad, um, occasionally you'll run into a, a, a reference about you know fears of what would happen if Chad broke apart, what the Soviets would do. Um, but for the most part, most most discussions about what to do in Chad and the stakes involved in the Chadian crisis and conflicts very rarely uh, mention the Soviets. Um, in fact, in the 1980s, the biggest fear were the Americans, because the Americans got increasingly involved in helping Hussein Habre. And also, the Americans under the Reagan administration were um, increasingly obsessed with uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, in Libya. So the Americans got quite involved in the wars that Hussein Habre fought against Gaddafi's regime uh, in the 1980s. Of which the French were also involved in. The French were very suspicious of this role, and they weren't uh, they didn't necessarily coordinate or cooperate with the Americans in quite the way that the Americans would have wanted. Uh, and this led this allowed Habre, in a lot of ways to play off these actors against each other, the French against the Americans. In the period I covered in my book, the Cold War is actually a strangely kind of absent um, actor. it's It's off the board. It's there. Um it's in the back of everybody's mind, but it's not playing a direct role in the conflict.
0: That's really interesting. Often the impact of the Cold War is overestimated. And of course, especially in Africa, we sometimes forget the more regional dynamics. So could you perhaps say a bit more about, yes, you mentioned, of course, Gaddafi and Libya, but what about other African actors uh, that were also involved in these uh, crises or uh, interventions. Sure. Um,
1: so uh, I think as, as the book progresses, there's uh, increasingly, uh, I have just spent increasing amounts of time discussing other countries than Chad and uh, France. So apart from Libya, which was, you know, obviously the, the main intervener uh, outside of the French here, we also have Nigeria. Now, Nigeria is interesting because for a long time uh, and even during the time uh, just discussing the book, uh, Nigerians are, are very suspicious of the French role in Africa. Um, they see the French as a as a potential competitor for regional influence. Very legitimately, see French uh, kind of uh, France as a potential adversary because in the 1960s France actively supported uh, the Biafra secession against Nigeria in the Nigerian Civil War from uh, nineteen sixty six to uh, nineteen sixty seven to nineteen seventy. There was a, a very recent history of of, of French involvement in trying to break apart the Nigerian uh, federation. So. Uh, there was a lot of suspicion in the Nigerian side about French motives. And what I found really interesting was how little the Nigerians were involved in Chad up until the very end of the 1970s, um, because Chad borders Nigeria, albeit there's no, not really a land border. The border goes through Lake Chad. And uh, one of the reasons maybe why there was not much involvement is because there are a few communities that are cross-border communities. There aren't really a lot of trade links between the two countries, um, and even the trade that does exist goes through Cameroon. so. Uh, you know, in that sense, there was, there was you know, maybe not much, uh, you know, from the perspective of, of Lagos and later Abuja, there wasn't much uh, to consider there. But um, as the Chadian Civil War got heated up and as the country became fragmented in the south, and this is something I didn't talk about before, when the Civil War erupted in, in and the capital itself, most of the southern population of the city fled the capital and they fled to the south. And the South started creating its own independent um, political authorities, which started to suggest the idea that there might be a secession of Southern Chad uh, into its own into its own country. And this really alarmed Nigerian policymakers, um, uh, especially in the mil- under the military government of uh, uh, of Assange. Uh There's a real fear that if you know this is this is a really bad precedent. We don't want we re- we don't want to accept the idea of of a partition. At the beginning of 1979, they they got involved by helping to organize peace uh, peace talks between different Chadian factions. In the course of these events, they actually initially collaborated with the French on, on this uh, and the organization of these talks. But very quickly, you start to see a, a, a falling out between the French and the Nigerians, because the Nigerians are convinced the French are supporting one of the factions uh, in these talks, uh, namely the faction support, uh, the faction led by Hissen Habre. Partly that's based on uh, anecdotal accounts of French military support in combat and fighting between Habre's troops and and other armed groups, some of which are, are I I was able to verify were true. Another is that some French military officials did exhibit a, a, a kind of pro-Habre orientation, um, and I have read lots of diplomatic documents, uh, documents from the the K. the French Foreign Ministry, uh, and their diplomatic corps complaining about the French military and their uh, uh, tendency to favor Habre. Um, at least at the kind of ideological or intellectual level. Uh, but this really irks Nigerians. Uh, so the Nigerians actually, um, while initially suspicious of Libya and Libyan motives, actually got involved kind of coordinating with Libya to try to get the French out of the country. By the end of 1979, the French were facing um, not just Libya that was trying to get the French out of the country, but Nigeria as well. Uh, and Nigeria even backed, uh, at least in indirect ways, one of the armed groups. Uh, and they Uh, made sure that the final agreement leading to the creation of this transitional government um, had, as a clause, the removal of French forces from Chad. And it's really interesting because the Nigerians really imposed this as part of the peace agreement when all the Chadian leaders, or almost all of them, privately went to French officials and said, no, don't don't leave the country, please stay, please stay. There's kind of this tension here. So the formal peace agreement says France has to leave Chad. All the Chadian armed factions say, say to the French, no, you have to stay but when civil war eventually breaks out, the, the, the French leave anyway, because they can't really do it. They can't, they're no longer in a position to stop the, the conflict. So in this sense, Nigeria actually plays a key role in getting the French out of Chad in, in 1980. So yeah, so at this point we have the, Lib- the Libyans, we have the, uh, the Nigerians, then uh, beginning 1981, you have one other actor that kind of steps on uh, um, in a major way, uh, and that's the United States. Uh, and the United States was uh, until 19, until Reagan became president in the United States in January 1981, uh, the U.S. had very very little, very few interests in Chad. There was an embassy there from 1961 or 62 onwards, and a couple very small aid projects, as well as a, a, an oil prospecting operation. But apart from that, there was almost no American involvement. But when Reagan came to power, he was um, one of his administration's priorities was uh, addressing the regional threat posed by Muammar Gaddafi and uh, which was related to terrorism, was related to assassinations was, uh, of, of uh, opponents in Europe, uh, his, his involvement in Palestinian and other kinds of terrorism. Also, the Reagan administration was concerned that even if Gaddafi may not have quite been a Soviet pawn, that um, his, act, his destabilizing activities regionally uh, were serving Soviet interests. So. This is where the Cold War kind of steps into the picture. So when the Libyans occupied the country in 1980-1981, the the CIA starts to funnel um, assistance to Hussein Habre, who's based now in Sudan, trying to launch a guerrilla war against the Libyan army. This support continues for a couple of months. It's also um, coordinated with Egyptians and with the Sudanese, who are themselves very opposed to Libya and Libyan expansion. And it ended briefly in 1982 when um, this OAU peacekeeping force uh, got assembled. After Libyans left, the, after Libyans withdrew from Chad, it would then resume again in 1983 when uh, Hussein Habré was again um, uh, faced with threats by Libyan-backed rebels. So this increasing dependence on the United States by Habré in the 1980s would really irk the French. It really, really uh, upset them. So by the point in 1990, one of the reasons why Habré was overthrown was because the French decided that. The, sorry, there's, I have to go back a little bit here. So. The Habre won a major military victory over the Libyans in 1988. So I don't talk about this in my book. Um, I know a lot of enthusiasts of the Toyota War would probably really like me to talk about this in my book. I don't go that far. They win a major victory over the Libyan army in 1988. And the uh, they, they destroy a Libyan military base called the Wadi Doum And the Libyan, the, the, the colonel in charge of that military base is a guy named Khalifa Haftar. And Haftar is now very famous today because he's the leader of one of the... Um, one of the factions in the ongoing Libyan civil war today. But at the time, the CIA and uh, uh saw him as a potential uh a potential asset, as a defector who could then lead a a kind of contra movement against Gaddafi. So they set up a training camp outside of Jamina to train uh Haftar and uh, a bunch of Libyan prisoners who agreed to join up with this new um this new movement. Uh but at no point did he uh did Habre inform the Americans about this, nor did the Americans inform, sorry. At no point did the Americans inform the French about this, nor did Habre inform the, the French about this. So the French were in the dark and only found out through their own sources that this was happening, that um, the Americans and Habre were involved in, in, in a, a very clear effort to unseat Gaddafi using armed armed groups in Chad. Uh, they're upset about this because that wasn't their goal. Uh, they also didn't want to be supplanted by the Americans in Chad. So they uh, they when uh, Habre's deputy uh, Idris Deby uh, tried to launch a coup attempt uh, in 1989, uh, and then escaped into Sudan after that coup attempt failed. French uh, did nothing to stop them. And they also provided some very covert support to Debbie in his effort to take power in 1990, which he did. Um, and then they became very close to Debbie and remain close to Debbie to this day. So they, they basically, uh, the, this involvement in the Americans actually led to Habre's downfall because uh, his movement towards the Americans aroused French suspicions and their worries that they would lose, they would again lose Chad to a uh, foreign power. And Losing Chad to the Libyans is one thing, but losing Chad to the Americans is, is even more humiliating for the French. So, this is that's something we're not we're not going to let happen. So, yeah, I mean, this is uh, I, I could talk also about the Egyptians and the Sudanese to some extent. I do have a whole chapter on the Central African Republic, um, although it was less of an intervener than um, than than uh, a um, uh, a player in terms of its connections with Libya and the French efforts to stop those connections. But, uh, yeah, Chad Chad's Wars became a, a very a regional conflict from the 1970s onwards. Uh, and that's uh, definitely an important element in understanding the story, as well as understanding the limits of France's ability to ultimately control the situation.
0: Thank you. Yes, uh, quite a mixed eclectic mix of actors there and in being involved. And of course, the French uh, always push back against any American influence. And uh, even if they had to live with it, it was always a bit of a, problem for them because somehow the Americans seem to have replaced the the British uh, in their kind of uh, fashoda complex, right? Um, Now, sort of coming full circle, I mean, at the beginning you mentioned, of course, uh, the current security uh, issues and questions uh, in uh, the wider African region. So France, as you mentioned earlier, is currently involved in a major military operation in the Sahel region called Operation Barkhane, It's an operation uh, targeting jihadist groups and supporting, I was supposed to support local governments uh, such as the one in Mali. So how can your book and research inform and be related to this current military involvement of France in Africa? Right, so there are a lot of parallels.
1: Uh, And again, I mean, you have to be careful with parallels, right, because there's, you know, history doesn't repeat itself and that kind of thing. Some of the parallels are a bit eerie, uh, and so so just to kind of uh, for those who might not know what's going on uh, or what's been happening the past couple of years in the Sahel. So, um, in in 2012, a group of armed group, uh, well, a collection of armed groups, as well including jihadist armed groups linked to Al Qaeda and other Islamists, took power in northern Mali, uh, took power in northern Mali, uh, and basically half the country fell under the rule. And at the beginning of 2013, they started to move towards southern Mali. And in January 2013, French President Francois Hollande intervened with the French army after basically a year of French, uh, repeated French declarations that they weren't going to get involved militarily. Um, they intervened with their army and stopped this movement to the south. And then they uh, they actually reconquered the rest of the country for the Malian governments. So they, they moved into northern Mali, they recaptured uh, Gao and Timbuktu, which uh, were, were then uh, uh, were captured uh, by the French and the jihadist groups no, no longer control these cities. But over the course of the following couple of years these jihadist groups as well as other armed groups began to re-establish themselves in the countryside not just in Mali but also in, in Niger and Burkina Faso. Also these a lot of this kind of diffusion of conflict is not just you know migrating jihadis it's also um, lots of local populations who are fed up with and resentful towards uh, the behavior of regional states which mistreat them. In any case, the French have expanded their military commitment to Mali since 2013 to merge with a military operation that already existed in Chad and had existed in Chad since 1986 continuously, called Operation Pelvier. And these two operations with additional elements kind of merged and became uh, Operation Barkhane in August uh, 2014. Barkhane is an operation that covers five different countries. I mean, in reality, it covers three countries. It covers Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali, but its headquarters is in Chad and uh it also uh is not notionally anyway includes mauritania uh its its main goal is to track down and uh degrade or destroy terrorist groups or the term the french use, are terrorist groups you might call them jihadist armed groups you might call them um rebels i mean there's different ways of defining them but the uh the french goal is to prevent the spread uh and um success of, of these jihadist groups as well as eliminating their leaderships there's kind of two broad parallels I see with the history of French involvement in Chad. Uh, well, or even three parallels. One, the biggest parallel is this French commitment to the stability of regional states and the fear of their their um, of of uh, destruction of a regional order based on kind of um, you know states that are relatively friendly, if not to France, at least uh, to each other and to uh, you know international institutions. By intervening, they're preventing these states from being overthrown, at least by the jihadists. Um, although uh, Mali's already seen two d'états in the past seven years. This involvement is aimed at protecting regional political uh, uh, orders, but at the same time, this protection to different regimes actually provides a disincentive for these regimes in the same way that it did for the Chadians to kind of make substantive uh, political concessions and reforms that would be needed to undo these political coalitions led by jihadist groups, as well as other armed groups opposing state authority. Little effort by the state, to, by the regional states, to build the kind of political coalitions they would need to extend a state authority that is legitimate and accepted and acceptable by populations living at the periphery of these different states. And the same process happened in Chad in the 1960s uh, and seven. At the same time, uh, the 2013 intervention uh, by Operation Salval. In, uh, in Mali, which stopped this jihadist movement towards Southern Chad, and also allowed the reconquest in Northern Chad, at least notional reconquest in Northern Chad by uh, the Malian state. It responded to similar uh, similar kinds of imperatives that led to the French intervention against uh, armed groups in Chad in 1978, when these Libyan backed armed groups were moving towards Jamina. And the idea was that by that any kind of, you know if these rebel groups were controlling North or Mali, yeah, that's bad, but that doesn't pose a fundamental threat to the regional order. But once they start moving towards uh, towards a capital or towards or start to threaten the actual political authority of the actual state, that's where that's the red line, that's the trigger, uh, and France. That's when France got involved. And you see a similar thing happening in in a number of other countries uh, when France intervened as well. There's, there's a, an ultimate red line that kind of triggers the French intervention, and in 2013 in Mali, uh, it was that. Yeah, I mean, the parallels get get a bit interesting in the sense in the way that the French involvement and continued involvement has these kind of second order political effects that actually make the intervention or they're they're actually counterproductive in a lot of ways, even though their military, every time, you know, the French army, you know, actually engages jihadist, you know, fighters, uh, you know, they win, uh, right? I mean, this is a, a modern industrialized military, they're going to win their actual battles, the kind of political incentives it creates among those actors in power encourages abuses by the state and does nothing to further the kinds of political reconfigurations of authority that are needed to actually address the causes of these conflicts. So in a lot of ways, France's intervention exacerbates the causes of conflict that it's meant to solve. uh, And that's exactly what happened
0: in Chad. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. Of course, this uh, how counterproductive intervention can be. Yeah, thank you uh, very much for answering all my questions. And more generally, thank you uh, for joining me today. It was a really fascinating discussion. I really uh, appreciate that you agreed to share your extensive knowledge on France's post-colonial security role and military intervention in Africa, as well as the security architecture of Francophone Africa. A great thank you also to our listeners. And uh, please do not forget to check out uh, the Centre for War and Diplomacy's other podcasts, as well as, of course, uh, don't forget to read Matt's book, uh, France's Wars and Chart military intervention, and decolonization in Africa. Thank you for listening. To hear further podcasts, please visit the CWD website, lancaster.ac.uk forward slash CWD. There you can find more on the CWD's research, events, and teaching, including the MA in International and Military History.